Please listen carefully. Welcome to the week that was at Global Voices, the podcast where we introduce you to people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. I'm your co-host, Lauren, news editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. And I'm your co-host, Sahar, managing editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. Global Voices is an international network of passionate, plugged-in people. Together, we've been telling stories about our communities through our digital reporting since 2005. The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of our newsroom. This week, we'll take you to Brazil, Russia, and Tanzania. We'll also speak with Global Voices Caribbean editor Janine Menz-Franco about the reaction to Brexit in her region. And we'll chat with Global Voices contributor Arzu Gebulia about the inequality and social injustice that lies behind the glitz and glamour in Azerbaijan. Here's a sneak peek. While the government is spending so much on image building um, events, they're not really increasing their salaries, they're not really increasing their pensions, they're not really making any effort in improving the conditions for average Azerbaijanis at all. But first up, we'll talk about the startling results of Brexit. In a referendum on June 23rd, 51.9% of voters in the UK said that they want to leave the European Union, while 48.1% voted to remain. The value of the British pound has nosedived since the results were announced. There's a lot of uncertainty, too, about how a Brexit would affect the UK, the European Union, and even the world. The ripple effects of Brexit are being felt all the way in the Caribbean. Global Voices Caribbean editor, Janine Menz-Franco, now joins us from Port of Spain in Trinidad and Tobago to explain why. Welcome, Janine. Hi, thank you for having me. Brexit could have intense implications for much of the Caribbean's trade ties with the EU, right? Could you explain why that is? Well, a lot of the trade agreements and, and cooperative agreements that the region enjoys is as a result of being former English territories. So we are Commonwealth states and still considered as Commonwealth states. And, um, and so a lot of the agreements with EU countries are um, because of that. And so Britain is almost our voice in that respect. So from that perspective, um, any preferential deals with regard to trade and economics that the UK's seat in the European Union was able to negotiate for the Caribbean that may take a hit and the EU, when they sort of re-examine all the agreements and so on, will have to look at at what current situations are with the Caribbean. So there are economic ties between the Caribbean and the UK and a lot of Caribbean people have personal ties as well. So how are Caribbean netizens and Caribbean people in general feeling about these results? Well, it was very unexpected. I think the vote surprised a lot of people. I think how it played out, certainly in the regional blogosphere, was that it was a vote for, it was like a no, a no to things like regionalization and integration, building partnerships and and turning your back on globalization is how people read it here. I think with our colonial history with Britain, a lot of people really sort of read it as a a slap in the face. It, It came across as little racist, little intolerant, and people saw the irony of it, you know, I mean, this is 
Great Britain was the, the great colonizer. And um, there were memes circulating on Facebook to that effect that, you know, um, Britain has colonized half the world, yet it's afraid of immigration. But I think what the vote communicated to the world was that the majority of Britons are not satisfied with the status quo. And, and this vote, this referendum, gave them the power to sort of use their voice. So maybe they're not satisfied with the way certain things are happening in their country. But the question is, is do you take the step to sort of say, well, no to integration, no to, to a unified trading bloc, no to free movement of people, or do you say, well, certain policies are not working for us in the UK, and how can we address those policies? But it doesn't negate the fact that the, the temperature of the country was leaning towards, you know, leaving through whatever, whatever they were satisfied about. That, that's how they expressed their, their discontent. Janine, the Britain-EU divorce brought up some bad memories of a failed regional cooperation in mm -hmm. the Caribbean, too. What's the story there? Back in 1958, um, this is sort of pre-independence in the region, there was an idea that uh, several Caribbean islands and dependencies would sort of get together and <clears throat> form a federation and petition Britain for their independence as a single unit. And uh, it started in 1958, and it eventually disbanded, I think, four years later, maybe 1962. And what basically happened, I mean, it's a lot of intricacies and political wrangling and so on, but basically the islands couldn't agree. And Jamaica pulled out of the federation, um, refused to send, there was a, I think, a, a certain level, like a federal level of elections or something within the federation. And they weren't sending any political representatives to that. Anyway, there withdrawal um, effectively led to the downfall of the Federation. And so I think that Britain's exit has sort of brought up memories of that. And, you know, I've had people asking, well, you know, what would, our, uh, would have our future looked like had we federated back in 1958, had it been successful? Would we be more economically powerful today? You know, what would the Caribbean look like under a Federation had it worked? I mean, there are things that similar type structures that, that are in effect in the region now. There's CARICOM, and under CARICOM, um, there is something called the Caribbean Single Market and Economy, which basically is, is an economic agreement that allows for free movement of, of goods and services and people and, and trading of skills and so on. But it hasn't always, it's there in theory, but it hasn't always um, translated well in practice. There have been some hiccups with immigration, between countries, there was a case, I think in 2011, and then the case was heard at, at the Caribbean Court of Justice in 2013, where a Jamaican national was um, strip-searched in Barbados, and she won the case. And then earlier this year, I think 12 Jamaicans were, were sent back, were deported back to Jamaica after landing in Trinidad. They were never allowed into the country. And Jamaica then went um, on a campaign for all Jamaicans by Trinidad and Tobago goods in protest of the treatment that they were receiving. So there is definitely a perception that, you know, certain CARICOM nationals are not as equal as others and that people aren't treated fairly throughout the region. Um, so there are a lot of echoes of Brexit and the whole EU referendum for people of this region. You've touched on what people in the Caribbean are saying about this and a little bit about what the diaspora in the UK is what they think and are saying about this. What about people from the Caribbean elsewhere in the world, like the United States, for example? What are they saying and talking about? 
well, they're talking about that if <laughs> Brexit can happen, because of course, you know, uh, Brits have an international reputation for being sort of very deliberate and measured and cool. So if Brexit could happen, which was a shock to very many people, um, then Trump is a real reality in the States come the presidential elections in November. Um, so a lot of, of um, Caribbean diaspora members feel that, that everything is swinging very far to the right. And yeah, they're just they're looking at it with curiosity, maybe a little bit of trepidation. So I guess we'll see what happens. We certainly will. Thanks, Janine, for uh-huh. speaking with us. Want to read more about the stories we mentioned in this podcast? You'll find them and more on our website, globalvoices.org, on Twitter at Global Voices, and on Facebook.com slash Global Voices Online. On to a story brought to us by Global Voices contributor Fernanda Canofre. Not that long ago, Brazil was under a military dictatorship that lasted from 1964 to 1985. During that time, it is well documented that authorities practiced torture against people they deemed to be their enemies. Prisoners endured beatings, electric shocks, and other physical and verbal abuse. A National Truth Commission set up to investigate the crimes of Brazil's past recorded accounts from some people in prison during the dictatorship. We'll be reading excerpts from these accounts in just a minute. They leave little doubt that what these prisoners endured was indeed torture. However, a small but vocal group in Brazil today believe that the torture, the disappearances, and the extrajudicial killings were justified to save Brazil from so-called communists. For example, during a vote to open an impeachment process against suspended Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff, a lawmaker openly lauded a man who has been recognized by the country's justice system as a torturer during the dictatorship. Deputy Jair Bolsonaro praised the memory of Colonel Carlos Alberto Brilhante Ostra. He also referred to the colonel as, quote, the terror of Dilma Rousseff. Rousseff, who at the time was a member of an armed guerrilla group resisting the dictatorship, was imprisoned and tortured by that military regime. The colonel directed a department responsible for suppressing internal dissent against the dictatorship. Under his leadership from 1970 to 1974, 502 cases of torture and more than 40 murders were reported. Years after the country's transition to democracy, he was one of the first of Brazil's torturers to go to trial. He died last year, though, before he could be sentenced. After the deputy's public praise, The number of fans for a Facebook page dedicated to the colonel increased by 3,300%. Compared to the region, Brazil has been slow to come to terms with its dictatorship past. Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay implemented national truth commissions in the 1980s, soon after they did away with dictatorship and turned towards democracy. And they even did it again 20 years later in the 2000s. Brazil, however, launched its truth commission in 2011. Here's an account from a female political prisoner as told to the National Truth Commission. This testimony has been edited for clarity. In the end, I don't really remember if it was the third, fourth day. I started to have a miscarriage. I was two months pregnant. Then I bled a lot. I had no way to protect myself. I used toilet paper and I already smelled bad. I was dirty and I think, no, I'm almost certain that I wasn't raped because I was constantly threatened because they were repulsed by me. 
At no moment was this a concern. I certainly miscarried because of the beatings I had endured during the first days. To the genital organs, the breasts, fingertips, behind the ears. That obviously provoked a disruption. I remember that I had a lot, a lot, a lot of pain in my neck. Because when we suffered beatings, you know, we threw our heads back. There was a moment when I didn't know where it hurt anymore. Because it hurt everywhere. In 2001, Dilma Rousseff also gave testimony of her experience while in prison. Her account to the Human Rights Commission of Minas Gerais only became public in 2012 in a report by a local newspaper. I was imprisoned for three years, she said. The stress is ferocious, unimaginable. I discovered, for the first time, that I was alone. I faced death and loneliness. I remember the fear when my skin trembled. It has an aspect that marks people for the rest of their lives. The marks of torture are me. They are a part of me. What do you think of this podcast? Be sure to find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Subscribe, give us an upvote, or drop us a comment. And if we don't appear on your favorite podcast app, let us know. Late in the evening on June 12th, a woman named Polina Anisimova received a photograph of her face from an unknown person on the social media site, Bokontaktia. The user asked if it was her in the picture, and sure enough, there was her sweatshirt, her birthmark, and the mole on her face. But she couldn't remember when or how the photo had been taken, and she had never uploaded any such picture to the internet. After Polina confirmed that it really was her in the picture, the anonymous account sent her several more photos. In the pictures, a young woman was urinating in a bathroom with white and brown tiles. Polina became even more confused, refusing to believe that this was her. The anonymous account warned her that she, like many other young women, were the victims of a hidden camera operation. This story was originally reported by Sonia Groisman and Ivan Pivseyev for the Russian independent news channel TV Rain. Kevin Rothrock, who is the editor of our project that interprets the Russian language internet, called Runet Echo, translated this report into English with the channel's permission. The photographs bore a watermark reading Hidden Zone. Polina and her boyfriend searched this phrase online and came upon a torrent tracking website with hundreds of videos filmed using hidden cameras in women's bathrooms. Before long, she recognized herself in one video's preview image. Now, there was no longer any doubt. It was her purse in the video, her blue jeans, and her bare buttocks. The only distinction was her long hair, which she'd cut short two years ago. That's how Polina learned that a pornographic video has existed on the internet since at least 2014, featuring her, filmed without her knowledge. The next day, Polina revealed the whole story on her Facebook page. She wrote, if I remain silent about this, this story could become grounds to blackmail me down the road, even though I didn't do anything, like thousands of other victims. The news media soon picked up her story. The thing that seemed to shock most people was that Polina, as best as she can guess, was filmed in the bathroom at a local Chocoladnitsa, one of Russia's most popular cafe chains. Anonymous informant says he began investigating the videos after one of his relatives became a victim. Now he says he's trying to figure out who's behind the videos, and he's notifying victims using FindFace, which is a controversial tool that links photographs of people to their Vokontaktia accounts. 
Polina and another four women filmed in the bathroom by hidden cameras are now consulting with a lawyer to take their case to court. Polina explains, What happened is a violation of our rights, and now we're trying to understand what to do about this and how to restore our rights. There are mountains of videos available online that feature hidden camera footage of women using public bathrooms and cafes and shopping malls, women in changing rooms, and in other similar settings. The market for this content are people who experience sexual arousal from spying on others. One subgenre of this voyeuristic pornography is hidden camera footage of women urinating. Before this case, Russia's voyeurs were a generally invisible community. Every year, though, hundreds of women in Russia are targeted by those who install hidden cameras and sell the footage. But there have never been high-profile criminal charges or convictions as a result. Moscow's police department says it can't recall a single report filed by any of the women targeted in the videos discovered in the past several months. Police don't consider it to be a mass phenomenon. To them, it's just a few isolated cases. You are not a soldier. You are not a rebel. They should understand that you are just a fighter. Yes, a fighter of a noble cause. Those words are from one of the many supporters of outspoken Tanzanian musician and activist Maembe Vitale. He was arrested on June 7th, charged with trespassing at the Bagamoyo College of the Arts and with disobeying police orders. Global Voices contributor Amanda Lichtenstein brought us the story. Vitale was picked up by police immediately after arriving at his old college campus, where student activists were staging a protest against an exam that wasn't accredited by Tanzania's Vocational Education and Training Authority. Students intended to hold a peaceful rally, singing and holding signs, but the police were called to intervene. They sprayed tear gas on the protesters, sparking violence. Vitali was injured during his arrest due to excessive force. He was released from custody the following evening. Vitali has made a name for himself promoting the arts as a powerful tool for political expression. He produces and sings original songs about corruption and inequality, so much so that fans refer to Vitali as Baba Ya Ekweli, which means Father of the Truth, and Sutu Yetu, which means Our Voice. From 2012 to 2013, Vitali took his politics on a national tour called the Vaccination Against Corruption. It offered free community shows with his band, followed by open public debates to, quote, give people a voice on the problems of corruption, laziness, and selfishness. The controversial tour ended in 2013 amidst security concerns, though Vitali continues to rail against corruption and injustice. On various occasions, he has even accused his alma mater the Bagomoyo College of the Arts, where he was arrested, of fraud, corruption, and theft. Tanzanians are living in a climate of heightened censorship. The country's Cyber Crimes Act actively represses opposition and dissent, especially online. That's why Vitaly's fans say his work is so important. It might be part of the reason why he was targeted by police. Vitaly's arrest happened the same week as opposition leader Zito Kabwe was summoned by a police commander. What for? Well, he had delivered a speech that warned against totalitarianism and corruption and called on citizens to question the government of President Magufuli. Magufuli won the election of 2015 amidst voter rigging accusations. Kabwe was released and no charges were filed, yet the government banned rallies for all political parties just two days later. 
While no direct correlation exists between the two arrests, the message is loud and clear. Opposition voices in Tanzania will be silenced. When Mirza Bita Abdullayeva, a 21-year-old mother in Azerbaijan, gave birth to triplets on June 21st, she had little inkling that two of her three newborn babies would die in their intensive care units within hours of their birth. Their deaths were the result of an electricity outage at the hospital and a malfunctioning generator. According to independent media in oil-rich Azerbaijan, the baby that did survive was transferred to a hospital in the capital city, Baku, where its conditions remain critical. Baku also just happens to be where the country had just finished hosting a showpiece Formula One Grand Prix that cost several hundred million dollars. Instead of acknowledging the state role in the deaths of the two newborns at the provincial facility, the Ministry of Health said the newborns died before the electricity outage and that the hospital therefore carried no responsibility. The case highlights the government's skewed public spending and poor record on human rights. Global Voices contributor Arzu Gaybolia is here with us now to tell us more. Welcome, Arzu. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What has the reaction been like to this story inside Azerbaijan? Uh, well, there's been actually mixed reactions. Um, the Radio Free Europe that originally uh, reported the story, um, they uh, made a, um, a call asking, asking Azerbaijanis, just average Azerbaijanis, whether um, they thought this could be um, allowed or whether the doctor should be sort of gotten if his doctor can get away from from this and many many um, residents said this is not this is not allowable like the doctor needs to be punished for for what he did and the hospital needs to be brought to uh, responsibility uh, for what had happened but then um, there were plenty of those who um, actually went ahead and just criticized the government for not um, investing enough in the healthcare and not uh, investing enough into um, the medical facilities that are actually outside of the capital because that seems to be the biggest problem in Azerbaijan um, that the capital Baku tends to provide better medical care than 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 the ones than the facilities outside. Having said this, it doesn't make uh, it actually doesn't make uh, much difference because even even in Baku itself, um, you have terrible. Um, medical services and you have to pay bribes and, and whatnot. Um, so there's been mixed reaction. A lot of people are obviously really um, upset by what happened, but then they also um, said that you know this was to be expected given given how bad and poor the medical uh, facilities, but also medical care and healthcare in Azerbaijan really is. And Arzu, Azerbaijan's economy has taken a significant hit because of the crash in oil prices around the world. Has the government reduced spending across the board, or are some things suffering more than others? Uh, well, it's, it's a good question, because when you look at the budget, especially for 2016, after the, the oil crisis and after the parliament actually re-looked at the budget, it doesn't look like the government is making any less spending. I mean, especially uh, given how much money has been allocated for um, international events such as Formula One race uh, that was mentioned earlier, it seems that there has been increase to events as image building or or focused on image building as opposed to you know education and healthcare and and and, and whatnot. Um, so they definitely haven't made any changes um, on that end. Uh, they have reduced spending <laughs> on precisely on education and healthcare and social care. 
the budget that's been allocated for defense, for instance, is as high as it used to be because um, the government really prides itself in, in how much money they, they invest in the military of the country. But then um, certainly when you look at a bigger picture, you know, you have people, average Azerbaijanis who are suffering more because um, while the government is spending so much on image building um, events, they're not really increasing the salaries, they're not really increasing the pensions, they're not really making any effort in improving the conditions for average Azerbaijanis at all. And they seem to not really take into account what's going to happen and how much this crash in oil prices will going to affect the economy in years to come. I mean, obviously, the price won't go back to its 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 um, previous uh, average, which was you know somewhere in, in ninety dollars per barrel, if not hundred dollars per barrel, maybe in a few years. But I don't think that's going to actually happen in, in years to come, or at least not in the near future. And so I think. Uh, whatever they're doing now in terms of spending, it's actually damaging uh, the economy, the country's economy, uh, which will, of course, result in the suffering of, of people uh, even more. So that's quite disturbing. Uh, there's been a lot of questioning of the budget. There's been a lot of questioning of the spending. There's been a lot of questioning of um, how really feasible are the government spending uh, priorities. Specifically, um, back to healthcare and the money being spent there, the death of these newborns isn't the only sad illustrative case to come out of that system recently, right? Yes, um, you're, you're absolutely right. Actually, um, if just a few days after this story, there was another story of an 80-year-old um, woman who was suffering from diabetes. And she was accepted, um, she was admitted to a hospital um, because one of her legs, uh, it had to be amputated um, due to her diabetes. And so when she, when she was taken into the operation room, the doctor cut, he, he amputated her healthy leg. And when she came out of the hospital, when she came out of the operation room, her, her family was shocked seeing that the, the sick leg that was supposed to be amputated is still there, whereas her healthy leg wasn't. You know, the doctor disappeared immediately. Uh, they couldn't find him for several days. There was a criminal investigation that opened. Um, the head of the hospital was also quite surprised by what happened, but of course it didn't really help the woman. Her second leg that was supposed to be amputated were amputated a day later, and now the woman is in intensive care. She is helpless. Her daughter says that she, the woman is constantly on painkillers because every time she wakes up from painkillers, she starts crying, and she doesn't know what she's going to do with her life. And this is, you know, just... a this is just one, two cases, basically, that made it to news. I mean, there are things like this every day. The, the, the competence of doctors and the services provided um, are just so, the, the quality is so poor that, um, you know, a lot, a lot of my friends actually joke that we'd rather not go to a doctor in Azerbaijan because we're afraid that we'll be made more sick or something will happen to us after the visit. So they'd rather go for um, treatment in other countries. In fact, because the medical because the medical treatment is so poor in Azerbaijan, a lot of Azerbaijanis who can't afford it, they leave for Georgia or they leave for Iran, which has been quite common, or they go to Turkey. Um, so I, I know several people who actually come to Turkey for uh, treatments and for uh, medical operations. Um, and Arzu, this goes beyond just spending priorities, um, and some journalistic investigations seem to implicate the country's president in corruption as well. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is the result not just of the spending. As you say, the government of Azerbaijan, and in particular the ruling family of um, Ilham Aliyev, uh, have been exposed 
in a number of corruption stories that were investigated by Azerbaijani journalists, including uh, Khadija Smailova, who was actually jailed for her investigations. Of course, when she was sent to jail, the actual charges were completely irrelevant. I mean, her first charge was actually incitement to suicide, and she was charged with tax evasion, embezzlement, and abuse of power. Uh, luckily, she's been released, but you know, they, they invested, while she was in jail, the fact that the Panama Papers came through and the fact that there were stories that were linking the ruling family um, to corruption, and this was not just the work of Khadija, but the work of so many other journalists, proved yet again that um, the family is engaged in corruption and they're washing away the money and there are offshore companies that are registered on the, on the name of the daughters of the ruling of the president and whatnot. And, you know, this has been going on for years. I mean, there have been journalists reporting on corruption in Azerbaijan ever since Ilham Alif came to power. I mean, one such journalist who was editor-in-chief of a magazine was actually killed um, in front of his apartment in 2005. And journalists who report on the corruption um, and, and can actually provide facts they often get um, punished. So, you know, in this case, murder. In Khadija's case, it was arrest. There was a case of another journalist who was arrested. And um, there are many more journalists and bloggers who are in jail because of writing about what's happening in the country, but in particular who report on corruption. And it doesn't seem to go away anywhere. I mean, the government doesn't even accept any slight sort of, they don't take the responsibility. I mean, I would just give you another example. Um, just a few days ago, there was a story that was released by the Italian outlets saying that the government of Azerbaijan paid close to $3 million to a European uh, parliament member from Italy who prevented Christopher Strasser's report on political prisoners. And this took place in 2013. Um, because there was the, 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 the Council of Europe, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe was debating on the resolution on political prisoners and it was then that um, the parliament voted against and, and for many of us who covered the country, I think this was the, the, the moment when the government really realized that they just could get away with anything because it was a very important resolution. It would have defined political prisoners and it would have put Azerbaijani government on, on, under the spotlight um, and, and would have forced the government to actually release all of, all of its political prisoners. Now, the, there was an interview with the, uh, the guy who heads Azerbaijan's delegation to the Parliamentary Assembly, and he refuted every single uh, question that was asked to him by the journalists, and one of the, the most shocking responses um, that he gave to the question of how do you actually respond to this allegation was that this was all part of a vicious uh, attempt to belittle Azerbaijan and belittle its image abroad. And, you know, of course he doesn't mention who does he mean. Um, he only mentions the Armenian lobby, which is always an excuse that is used by the um, officials of the, um, the government of Azerbaijan. Everything seems to be uh, a ploy uh, that is implemented by the Armenian lobby. But also he dismissed any previous allegations and, and actually proof that you know there were these parliament members who were friends of Azerbaijani government who were part of this what we call caviar diplomacy. You know, they would be sent to trips abroad and, and, and whatnot, um, funded through the government of Azerbaijan. And yet he dismissed all of that. And this is the attitude, sadly, not only of the representatives of the, of the government, but also you know, the, the, the family, the ruling family. So they, they never respond to any allegations on corruption, and they seem not to be doing anything to get away with it, because obviously they're benefiting from it, and obviously they're getting away with it. So it's quite a, a, quite a sad picture.
and yet, you know, it seems to affect only the people and, you know, the civil society rather than um, people who work for the government. That's a really um, troubling uh, picture that you paint there, there Arzu. Um, you know, power to all the journalists that continue to bring uh, these stories to the spotlight and, um, you know, fight the good fight. And uh, even people like you who are outside the country and, and trying to raise awareness. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today, Arzu. Thank you for having me. A day after we recorded this interview with Arzu, the third baby, whose newborn siblings had died only a few hours after being born, sadly also passed away. And that's it for this episode. This is Lauren. And Sahar. A big, big thank you to all our authors, translators, and editors who helped make this episode possible. In this episode, we feature Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jazer, It Always Rains in England by Ergo Fimiz, Anxiety by Kai Engel, Camera Eye by Happiness in Aeroplanes, Linger by David Shedsai, and False Note by VYVCH. Thanks for tuning in to The Week That Was at Global Voices. You'll hear our voices again in two weeks. <laughs>